gate before to exit out. And this is up here. Uh, and they're already okay. up here. Because Chris has all that usually. Yeah. Before. But so, I'm still going to push over, not down. Yeah. yeah. And you hit F5 to start. Okay. Then once they come up, just slide it over. Oh, I see where it's down there. Okay. Okay. And, and this is live already, right? Yeah. Okay. And I need to actually mute it right now. Okay, unmuted and down. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here. Let's all stand together and let's, let's start our morning. Okay. Kind of nervous. Okay. <laughs> so right now, you got to just line the other table.
salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful to be here today and to see our, our church family here. Lord, we just pray that as we come together and we fellowship, Lord, we just pray that we will honor you with our worship, or in the song, in the spirit, in the uh, scripture reading. And Lord, we pray that today that we'll just uh, uh, hear your word, hear the preaching, and apply to our heart that we may be better equipped. Just as we read here, as I put it on the horn, Lord God, that we may be able to withstand whatever comes against us. But we're just so grateful for your many blessings that have come today with thankful hearts. We just uh, we just pray that uh, our praise and worship will be uh, pleasing to your sight. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, sing together again.
you as an ear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Go to one prayer. Father, we always ask as we gather to open up your word that you would open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet. Your word would transform us by your Spirit through the gospel. Would you be so kind to help us as we approach this real city and a real community facing real challenges, yet are worthy of praise? May we find to be a church as faithful as they, despite our circumstances. May I decrease so that you can increase. Amen. I'm willing to bet that at some point in your life, you got that that uh, sinking feeling in your stomach. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're, it's the end of the workday on Friday. You may even be trying to sneak out a little early. And right as you're, you're passing by your boss or your director tour, they shout out from the office, hey, first thing Monday morning, I want to see you in my office. And you walk right out the door. You, you forget to even say goodbye to all your coworkers and friends. You forget to pick up whatever it is your wife told you to pick up. Because there's one thing on your mind. What have I done now? And in the next three days, you start to, to, to you're up all night. You, you, every conversation, you're, you're not even there. Because you're trying to figure out, what have I done? Maybe it was that joke I made that, that really offended someone. Maybe they, they didn't approve so much of that project I finished. I thought it went quite well. And you start to rationalize how a terrible human being you are. And then you, you come gently knocking on that door first thing Monday morning. Boss, you wanted to see me? I have a seat here, you know, he or she may say. You're ready to lose your job. You're ready to be demoted. You're ready for something bad to happen. Go the hope. You get that rage. You, you get that promotion. Whatever it was. And for the fun of it, your boss said that on Friday just to drive you crazy. <laughs> I can only imagine that is what the church in Philadelphia experienced when they got in the mail a letter addressed to them. And in the return address, it said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, descendant of David, from the tribe of Judah, of Nazareth, whatever his, his long title is, and, and to the church of Philadelphia. I and mean, imagine if we read a lot, letter like this, and it begins with, I know your work, you're thinking, oh no. Oh no, what have we done wrong now? But in actuality, what we have here, which is unique among the seven churches, Smyrna a little bit is similar in this way. Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church, but only positive. Which, when you really think about it, is surprising to the reader. Think about it. From when we started with Ephesus, they've only gotten worse. The Ephesian church was coded and different. The Smyrna church was under constant threat, and many were dying at the time of the writing. Pergamum flirted with antinomian heresy. Thyatira openly engaged with and accepted heresy. And Sardis, my goodness, what a mess they were. Jesus said they look alive, but they are dead. Absolutely dead. And so we're, we're preparing ourselves and reading this letter for the worst. But actually, Jesus has only good things to say about them. Now, we need to be clear what we learned in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is not a perfect church. They are a faithful church. 
And that is the emphasis of this letter. Let's start here with the name. The name here in verse 7. You see it there to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, if you've been here for our study of the seven churches, you know that every letter of the seven churches starts the same way. To the church of blank, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Laodicea, whatever. And then we get a picture of Jesus largely borrowed from chapter 1, which is why we spent an entire week surveying the details of chapter 1. And we get the same thing here to the church of Philadelphia from here's an image of Christ. What is striking is that what we are given here isn't predominantly borrowed from Revelation 1. It's borrowed from the rest of Revelation. Clearly, it's a very different sort of letter from the others. Notice here we learn two things about Jesus. The first thing we learn is that he is holy. He is holy. Now, Revelation regularly identifies Jesus with holiness. So we get this in chapter 4. We've looked at chapter 4, chapter 5 on Sunday evenings. The word holy is all over the place, right? And what are the, the four living creatures and 24 elders and all those, those divine beings saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. In case you didn't hear me the first time or the second time, they're crying out, he is holy. Same thing in chapter 6. We'll come back to this verse later. Uh, the the, the uh, martyr saints under the altar, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true are you. Chapter 15, we see, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will worship you because you alone are holy. Holy. Same thing in chapter 16. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One. Of course, this language, which is predominates Revelation, has its context in the Old Testament. You can't read the Old Testament without discovering God is holy. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible you and I don't read, uh, but it's about the whole about holiness, about how God is holy. The book's Leviticus. The reason you've got to do all that weird stuff in Leviticus, particularly the priest, is because God is holy and you ain't. And so there's all these rituals and everything that have to go, go on. But the idea is God is holy. He is other. He is distinct. He is separate compared to you and I. And so the system gets quite complicated. But even beyond Leviticus, we, we see the same thing. Isaiah 40. See if this sounds familiar. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says who? The Holy One. Seems like we read about God being the Holy One somewhere in Revelation. The New Testament wants us to see that Christ is holy. Remember all those demons? They wrote nasty things on social media about you and me, but when it came to Jesus, they, they said other things, didn't they? In Mark 1, we, we see, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One. Same thing in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. In the synagogue, there was a man with the spirit of unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And you come to destroy us. I know who you are. Holy One of God. Even the disciples got this right. In John chapter 6, at the feet of the 5,000, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Clearly, the New Testament. In general, Revelation in particular wants to see that Christ in his essence is holy. Not only is he holy, he is also true. In fact, we can go back to chapter 1 where we see this, that Jesus Christ is referred to as the 
faithful witness. In chapter 15, they, they sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. Same thing in chapter 16. I heard the author saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You need to notice here, we are referencing single verses. If you put in the context, chapter 15, chapter 16, and others, it will emphasize God's holiness in Christ's uh, a trustworthiness and faithfulness all together. Chapter 19, if his judgments are true and just, for he has judged that horror that we talked about a few weeks ago. Same thing in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll talk about it a little bit tonight. He said to me, these are the true words of God. Again, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it has a name. What's the name? Faithful and true is his name. What is striking is that there's only twice in all of Scripture that, that, that the adjectives of holy and true are combined together. And both have to do with Christ. Here in chapter 3, right into the Philadelphians, and as we saw earlier, chapter 6. They, that is the saints, cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Remember, these are martyred saints. And Jesus here is writing to those who have suffered under Caesar. Many of them are likely martyred saints. What is they are declaring? Christ is holy and true. Not only do we see that he has these titles of the Holy One and the True One, we also see here he is said to have the key of David. Now, that is a, is, is, is a detail that many of us probably don't think much about, but plays an important role in Scripture. The keys of David, uh, this is taken directly from the Old Testament. So you see what he says there in, in, in Revelation. He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, shuts and no one opens. Well, this is almost verbatim from, from Isaiah chapter 22. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Open clearly. John wants us to see a connection between the Isaiah's messianic promise and the fulfillment of it as declared here in Revelation. Now, if you know Revelation uh, at all, this language of keys may ring a bell. There are all kinds of keys in Revelation. In fact, by my study, I found three. The first is the keys of David, right here in the text, clearly uh, connected with the messianic hope of Israel and the people of God. There's also the keys of death and hell, right? In Revelation 1, it says, um, the living one says, I died, behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and haze. And guess what happens? That's chapter 1. This is what happens at the end of the book. Death and hell itself, death and haze, is thrown into the lake of fire, which is why in the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, which again, we'll talk about this evening, there is no death. There is no sting of death. There is no fear of death. Why? Because death, our ultimate enemy, has been cast into hell itself. Amen. Finally, there is the keys to the bottomless pits. In Revelation 9, we see the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and he was given the keys to the shaft to the bottomless pit. Chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, you may want to write this down, because this is a detail you may not realize, okay? Keys open doors. Did you get that? that y'all, some of y'all complain I'll talk to you fast. Let me say that even slower. <laughs> Keys open doors. That just blew your mind, didn't it? You know, I have three degrees from the cemetery this, this 
that is, that is free. I wouldn't even charge you for that. But you notice the significance of keys in Revelation. To possess a key is to possess the authority of deciding who enters uh, a door and who doesn't. I remember when, when I had a first retail job, right? And, and I loved that job. I was working in the music department at Christian Music. And uh, I remember that uh, they one day pulled me aside and said, you know, hey, we need to talk at the end of time. Right? And, and they gave me a set of keys. And they gave me the combination to the safe. And with it came a promotion, change of title, a little bit more money, and a lot of responsibility. And with that means I could open the store, I could close the store, I could rob the safe, I could do all of that sort of stuff, right? With the keys came the responsibility, but with the keys came authority. If I have the keys, I can decide who comes in and who comes out. So too, if I give you keys, say to my car or to my house, I am giving you authority over those things. So too, because Jesus has the keys, David of Declan and Hades, the Bible's pit. At times he gives those keys to a mighty angel without, but it is his keys. Thus with it comes the authority. So what we have here is Jesus who is true, Jesus who is faithful and holy, and Jesus who has all authority. Writing this letter to the Philadelphians. Now let's just pause here. Who cares about any of this? It may be fascinating in one interview, but, but, but what does it really have to do with the price of bread in China or whatever that, that proverb is? Can I give you three things this tells us about ourselves in light of what we see about Christ? The first thing, this tells us something about our identity. Notice here that if Christ is holy, then what we need to see is that in Christ, we are declared to be holy. Okay? You need to see this. Christ is holy. Hidden in him, we are declared holy. What I'm not saying is you're perfect. What I am saying that God sees us not as we really are, which ain't good, but as Christ really is. In Revelation, we get a picture of Christ clothing the saints with a robe dipped in blood. A, a white robe dipped in blood is to say is, is that we are clothed in his righteousness. In the prophetic vision of Zechariah, when Joshua the high priest is covered in excrement, what does Jesus declare? Cover him in a clean robe. So too our identity in Christ is one of holiness. This is the beauty of Christianity, I believe. Christianity is not about what you have done or who you think you might be, or what others' opinions of you it might be. It is about who Jesus says you are. Amen. And if you are hidden in Christ, you are holy. It doesn't mean, again, you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you haven't made mistakes. It means that in our failures, in our mistakes, in our setbacks, we come to a Savior who has covered us with His blood. There is freedom in that identity. You won't find it in any other identity offered to you today in this fallen world. Not only do we discover our identity of the Holy One who declares us holy, but we learn our calling of the Holy One who makes us holy and sends us into a dirty, uh, 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 unclean world. Notice, for example, in Revelation 22, it says, Let the righteous still do right, 
and the holy still be hopeful. That makes sense, right? If the, the righteous do righteous things and the holy ones do holy things. This is one of the things I think people get confused when it comes to Christianity. But what they think is because of, like I grew up in a legalistic society, and you probably did too, we've lost that, but, but nevertheless, you think, okay, I got Jesus, right? I said a prayer. Now I've got to, I, I, I've got to prove myself worthy of that. Because I don't want to fall back. I, I, I don't want to you know, hurt Jesus' feelings, whatever. So I've got to prove myself. So, first thing, I've got to go to church, right? And we're missing something there, right? The thing you love the most, you will order your life around. Think about it. I love my wife more than anything in this world. Therefore, much of my life is is centered around her. Like, I am willing to sit down for dinner with her parents every once in a while when I'm forced at the edge of the gun, right? Now, why? Why? Because the thing I love the most comes with obligations, responsibilities. I don't see them as obligations and responsibilities, minus the jokes, of course, but I don't see them as, as obligations, responsibilities, but an honor that comes with the pleasure of the thing I love the most. A few years ago, I, I, I remember I came into the, uh, to the dining room, wherever the family was, and said, guys, I know where we need to take a trip this year. And, 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 and then, okay, what is this? We need to go to Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, what's in Charlotte, Daddy? And I'll tell you what's in Charlotte. My favorite soccer team is going to be playing in Charlotte. That's what's in Charlotte, <laughs> right? Now, your favorite team, my favorite team, right? If it's something you really love, maybe you're not in sports, maybe it's, I don't know, shopping or something, whatever it is. And then what you find is you naturally center your life around that thing, right? You're willing to spend money and time and effort and energy and thought and everything around that. So too, if you've been declared holy by Christ, so too our lives are centered around the Holy One who declares and makes us holy, and our goal in life is to grow in that holiness and to serve the one who is holy. By the way, this is what you see in Revelation, if you can't tell. In fact, what you get in Revelation is a clear development of, of, of what we call s of, of saints. Now, when you hear saints, you're probably thinking, well, uh, uh, that is a, 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 a PhD-level of Christianity, right? And only certain people get those, right? Right? And that, that's Catholic theology. We ain't Catholic. And Catholic theology is you're here, and that's as good as it's going to get for you all. That's as good as it's going to get. Uh, and so you can't get to heaven being here. you got to go purgatory. you got to be purged. However, there are super Christians. Like they have their own Disney Plus show and everything. And, <laughs> and they're up here. If you pray hard enough and you make the right sacrifices and you, and you drink their blood, whatever it takes – you can get their merit to you that takes years off of off of your, your your time in purgatory, right? Guess where that is in the Bible? It's not. Okay, right? You've been alone, right? Rather what you have in the Bible, the word saint in Greek means holy one. And it is applied to every believer who professes Christ. We don't have time to, to do an entire theology of it, but let me just encourage you to go to the book of Ephesians. Where, where Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus, and then you read the rest of Ephesians, and you're thinking, they don't look like saints, right? Husbands love your wives? That probably tells me they ain't loving their wives, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what you have to read in the New Testament, don't you? But they're still called saints. Why? Because the Holy One has declared them to be saints, to be holy. 
We get the same thing in Revelation. The saints are all over the place. We don't have time to look at all the prayer of the saints in chapter 5, the prayers of all the saints, in case that wasn't clear in chapter 5, we get in chapter 8. Here's the call for endurance of the faith of the saints. Same thing written in chapter 14. Uh, chapter 16, for they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets. Notice that saints are equated with the prophets. So if you think prophets are super believers in God, you're right there with them. Same access to God as, as fellow priests. Chapter 18, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets. Again, you see the equation there. The bride of Christ is clothed, chapter 19, with fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And you notice in Revelation, the saints are not just martyrs. It is all believers throughout all of history. And our calling is to see our identity and fulfill it in being holy as the Holy let me, thirdly, we've got to move on, our endurance. We've only looked at one verse. I guess you're really nervous about lunch <laughs> Our endurance. I believe that suffering affirms it does not contradict God's holiness and faithfulness. You see that this letter is written in the context of suffering, as we'll see here in a second. Which means the more we see the beauty and the holiness of Christ, the uglier this world looks and gets. In fact, I think there's a real test, a scale, if you will, for where you are in your relationship with Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the uglier everything else gets. Now, if your temptation is to look like and be friends with and to partner with the world, then you're not getting closer to Jesus. You're not at all. I came across the quote by uh, the legendary coach of my favorite soccer team. His name is Arsene Wenger. You don't know who he is. He ain't from around here, so no longer do you care. I could have said he's a basketball coach. You would have paid attention then. Um, he had this quote, right? He, he, he had a team that had won all the trophies and everything, and then the next season, he lost to a team he shouldn't have lost to. Right? It's like Kentucky football, right? I mean, he, he yeah. And in the post-game uh, interview, he had this line. I, I love this line. If I were richer, I would love it more, more because I would understand what he's talking about. Here's the line. If you eat caviar every day, it's difficult to return to sausages. Has anyone ever Googled caviar? I'm a country boy from the South. I ain't eating no caviar. I, don't, I, can't, I just can't do it. But if I grew up in New York with wealth, I probably would have been fed that instead of beans, I guess. I don't, I don't know, beans and cornbread. But, but you get this point, right? Here is a delicacy of the rich. And apparently it tastes good. I can't imagine it does, but I'm from the South. I, I think beer tastes good. So, but, but if you're used to that delicacy, then this lesser food, in your opinion, you ain't never going to go back to. So, too, if you see the beauty and the majesty of Christ, is the point of the book of Revelation in a nutshell. What is this world? Would you not be willing to suffer for what are you really losing? You have Christ who is far better. Christ who is far better. So suffering should draw us to hope in Christ who is faithful and true, who is holy and glorious. Where else will we turn? Like Smyrna, we saw a few weeks ago, Philadelphia is suffering, and in their suffering, they are introduced to a Savior who is armed with the keys of David, who is called true and holy. Well, let us look briefly. Before the message to show up a cracker girl at the names. We saw the name, that is of Christ. Let us look at the names here, the Philadelphians. You need to notice here in verses 8 to 13, 
Jesus promises two things. We can't go into greater detail that I, I would like and my priest professor would, would, would prefer. But but I think I think we get the point across pretty quickly. Number one, Christ promises open doors. You see it there in verse 8 and 9. It says, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, the doors is one of two things, maybe a little bit of both things. The first, it could be a reference to spiritual blessings. Despite their circumstances, despite their difficulties, you see the synagogue saying the reference again there in verse 9. We've talked about that before. That despite those circumstances and difficulties, their faithfulness is itself a blessing from Christ. In fact, there's, there's a similarity to this again from Smyrna. There's a lot of parallels between the two churches. Remember, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're really rich in Christ. Your circumstances do not determine who you really are. This is why identity language is so central to Christian theology and Christian life. So too, Christ has opened the doors of spiritual blessings despite their suffering, despite their hardships, despite their circumstances. That door could also be a reference to missions. If you read the New Testament, oftentimes the word door, particularly in Pauline theology and writings, is a reference to missions. Let me prove it to you as quickly as I can. 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Same language we see in Revelation. In 2 Corinthians, when I come, came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened to me for me in the Lord. Same thing in Colossians 4. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So often this language of opening of a door has with it a, 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 an opportunity for missions. Both are true, right? That suffering does not mitigate the blessings of God, but is the blessings of God that allow us to endure with great patience through suffering. At the same time, suffering doesn't keep us from, from our calling as missionaries in a broken world. So as often is the catalyst by which souls become saved. In fact, notice the, the language there of verse 9. We can get distracted by all the stuff about synagogue of Satan. But, um, and, and what does it mean? They'll come out and bow down for it. I don't understand all of that, but I love this at the very end. They will learn what I have loved you. I can't explain all the other stuff, but I do understand that. Christ has opened a door. Despite your circumstances, and learn this one lesson, I have loved you. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come has, is, and will love you. And that has nothing to do with your circumstances, dear Lord. For he is holy and true. So not only does he offer open doors, he offers us security. Security. There is significant debate regarding the specifics of verses 10 to 13. We can't get into all of that. But you see what, what he says there. You have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. A couple of things to, to know what is important here. First of all, the believers in Philadelphia have suffered with great patience. This is a, a theme we see in all seven churches, essentially, isn't it? Endure with patience. You don't have to know the why. You don't, know, you don't have to understand the when. You don't have to understand the who. You don't have to understand anything. What you do have to understand is that Christ is holy and true. He has the keys of David, and he will overcome. You 
endure. We said this a few Wednesdays ago in our study of Hagar. If you know the promises of God, could you persevere to the end? Think so. And you know the promises of God. The second thing he, he, he tells the Philadelphians here is that God will sovereignly limit their suffering. Now this is striking to me. Because you may recall a few weeks ago with the study of Smyrna, he promised the opposite. To the Smyrnans he said, You're, uh, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now notice there he says your suffering will increase. To the Philadelphians he says your suffering will decrease. I cannot tell you why one has suffering that increases or the other has suffering that decreases. We can guess all we want to, but I cannot say thus says the Lord, this is God. Is it not simply because God is sovereign and I am not? And whether your suffering is increasing or your suffering is decreasing, who Christ is, is not subject to change. It is a blessing to the Philadelphians. Their suffering will come to an end soon. It is an equal blessing to the Spurs if they will hold fast to the faith that they will find a way to persevere through the end. Do not define anything by your circumstances, but by the Christ who is sovereign over your circumstances. You don't need to understand everything about why this or why that. Just know that Christ has loved you. And notice the promise there in verse 11. I am coming soon. That's good news, isn't it? That is good news. One time I was dropped off at an event that uh, was going to be a summer little thing. I was a younger kid, and I did not like it at all. Uh, I, I pretended to be an extrovert, but I'm really more of an introvert. Um, but I come from a family of extroverts, so, so I have to you know, play the part in order to keep up. But, but, but I didn't know anyone here. I didn't want to be here. And I remember around lunchtime, I thought, I hope to never come back here. But one thing I know, 4 o'clock, my parents are going to come pick me up. If I could just hang out for four more hours. Four more hours. So too. If you know as he is that he is coming, surely you and I can endure another election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I would say we're worse, but that would be a lot. Right? That, that, that only we, we, it can get worse Let's make two conclusions about the Philadelphian church from this text. At least from the perspective of the Philadelphian The first is, Jesus, Jesus promises that these believers will never, it says in verse 10, 12, never shall he go out of the kingdom of God, right? In AD 17, the city of Philadelphia was rocked by a major earthquake. And this single earthquake devastated 12 cities in the area, destroying entirely some of those. Philadelphia was one that was nearly completely destroyed. And because of where the city of Philadelphia lies in Asia Minor, it is right near a fault line, which means there is a constant threat of natural destruction, which means it was less safe to live inside the city than it was to live outside the city gates. So, unlike the other cities we've looked at, the population lived outside. Now, if they were under siege, they would run in. But, as a general rule, most of the population lived outside the city gates. 
In fact, Pliny the Elder described that earthquake as the greatest earthquake in human memory. But what is it that Christ promises them here? They understood that, look, most of us live outside the city walls because of the constant threat of nature and life and everything. What is it that Christ promises here? He promises them an eternal home that they shall never leave from me. You see, for them, their safest place of security was at the same time the most dangerous place to be. But Christ says, you who have suffered, you who live in this fallen world, in me, in my home, you will forever be safe and free. And you will never need to come, need to come and go. I hold the keys and I welcome you in. <clears throat> the second thing he promises is that the Philadelphians will be known by other names. So we saw the name. Now we need to look at the names. The language is very clear there, isn't it? Particularly in verse 12. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Remember, in the Bible, repetition is for the purpose of emphasis. And John wants us to see, Christ wants to see, emphasis on names. You see, throughout the Bible, names imply more and carry more than legal and relationship obligations, right? So my name, I have a last name that tells you what tribe I'm from, right? Um, now, if I were to change my first or last name, I have to go through the legal process. Otherwise, the IRS won't be able to find it, okay? So names carry with it legal and relationship obligations. You ladies who marry probably change your last name. That brings with it relational obligation. In the Bible, though some of that is true, names carry with it covenantal and spiritual borders, which is why God changes people's names all the time. So Abraham becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. And we, we, we can give plenty of examples of this, couldn't we? Why? Because the Bible is saying this person, there is something of significance here. And the meaning of the name is important. And so what we have here is the promise that are being made to believers who endure with great patience. They are rewarded with a new name. They will have the name of my God, Jesus says. They'll have the name of the city of my, of my God, the New Jerusalem. And they will be given my own name. This is an eternal promise. It says, you will be mine, and we will be together forever. And the Philadelphians understood this equation quite well. After all, this was the problem with the city. You see, following that devastating earthquake in AD 17, Caesar Tiberius exempted that city from taxes. Man, makes you kind of want us to get another earthquake, don't you, right? I mean, maybe not. Some of y'all work for revenue, like preacher. I just don't think that's a good idea. Okay, let's crank the money. But he exempted them from taxes for five years and added other financial aid to help them rebuild. As a result, the city changed its name to Neo-Caesarea. That is, the, the city of the new Caesar. This name stayed the same for 25 or 30 years, of which he was changed under in an honor of Caesar Vespasian. The city then was called Flavia. It, it was his, his first name, Latin name. And they even built a temple in honor of that Caesar, where they worshiped the living Caesar. What does Jesus say here? You will be given a name. 
an eternal name, not subject to circumstances, not subject to fallbacks, not subject to other people's opinion, not circumstances to what is going around you. You will be given an eternal name by God Himself, for you will be His. Isn't that good news? And what is the key for this church? They proved to be faithful in difficult if only I could think of an application for that right now. Church, you and I are called, like the Philadelphians, to be faithful in troubling times. And what is our reward? To enter a city by which we'll never want to leave. To be given a name. A precious thing of itself. He will come. So let us, above all things, be faithful Christians, saints, part of a faithful church. We know who we are, and more importantly, we know who's. That's right. Father, I ask that you would be kind and gracious to us. We will seek to be faithful saints, faithful church. Where there is no shortage of suffering and confusion and we can all count as the group. We're called to be faithful. To be holy as he is true. To be true as he is true. To be as faithful as he is faithful. Can we be obedient to that call? Christ, we need your spirit and your
want to thank you all for being here this morning. I always enjoy our time of worship. I'm starting to feel more and more that we are nearing the end, if not right there at the cusp of the end of this, this COVID stuff. So it's really good seeing, seeing y'all. Um, next Sunday, 1130, 11.30, next Sunday, is we're going to eat. Now, I never thought in my life we would ever not have morning worship so we can have a meal. But I never thought there would be international pandemic, right? We didn't talk about that in cemetery. And one of the things we've been robbed of the last year is fellowship. We've had to do social distancing to stay away from each other. We've had to do church online and over the phone and all that sort of stuff. So we want to rekindle what it is that we've lost and take just one Sunday to do that. And, and we also want to invite those that we haven't seen. Your job next, this next week, you got seven days, is to invite someone and to get them here. Right? If you have to pay them, go ahead and do it. Okay? Uh, <laughs> you get them here. They don't have to cook anything or bring anything. You're going to do that for them. So, so we want this to be an outreach. We also want to reach out to those that we haven't seen, members of the church and, and, and guests of our church, whatnot. Um, and this is going to be our, our official reopening of things, which means we'll go back to youth group on Wednesday nights and and of course, Sunday night, but VBS will complicate that. A kids program on Wednesday nights, right after Father's Day. Uh, I, I think we'll add some Sunday school class. So all of that stuff, uh, we're wanting to after our Father's Day stuff. So please, please come out for that. And uh, we're going to have uh, what you've really been missing since COVID, and that is Miss Mary's and Miss Barbara's uh, uh, banana pudding. Mm. <laughs> if you're not here next week, you can't have their banana pudding. All right? And they're going to fix more than enough. For you and your guests, okay? They told me this uh, by osmosis, right? And it was on a Zoom call, I think. And it's okay, I read it in the report on CNN. So you know it has to be true. Seems like there would be a Fauci joke there. That may be taking it too far. But um, um, uh, so not just for the banana pudding, there, there will be chicken. What else do you want, people? Fried chicken will be here. But please come out. I, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And you won't have to hear me preach. So without an excuse to that. Um, July 17th, we're going to have a yard sale free stuff. Bring your junk. Bring between 10 and 12. We need volunteers to set up, volunteers to tear down, volunteers to work in the middle. It's an outreach. We're going to have a, a booth for registration where people can fill out if they want us to, to engage with them more. We'll have a prayer booth. So you prayer warriors, I've got a job for you. Okay, We're going to pray for people. We need people to walk around and to help carry stuff to people's cars. and It'll be a real joy. Got a lot of work for you to do in July. VBS is in July, and Sunday evenings. If you're not in VBS, you're in small group, okay? So you can either volunteer for VBS or you go to small group. We've got two groups right now. If you need more, we'll add more. Drop your kids off if you need to. Go to small group, right? You get an hour or so. You get to eat. You get to talk about Jesus with other people who want to talk about Jesus. And you get to grow as a disciple of Christ. We have got plenty for you to do in the coming months. Guess what? You had a year off, a year plus off. And state employees, they're typically off anyway. So, no excuses. No excuses, okay? Um, we got a world to reach here in Frankfurt, so let's do it, okay? I'm tired of talking. You're tired of hearing me talk. So, um, how about uh, Don Lewis, who had a bit of a scare this week. Got a wreck. Doing well. The Lord protected him. So, how about uh, he's clearly hearing your prayers. Uh, why don't you close us out in prayer? 